Open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. That last song's got me down in the base zone. <clears throat> Mark chapter 10. We're going to look at verses 17 through 27. We're looking at the subject of three impossibilities for the natural man. Three impossibilities for the natural man. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 17, we read, And when he was gone into the way, or gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? And the Jews would not use this term good in addressing a rabbi. So Jesus had every right to ask this man why he was using this term. And Jesus goes on, he says, There is none good but one, that is God. Thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, defraud not, honor thy father and mother. And he answered and said unto him, Master, all these have I done, or all these I have I observed from my youth. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him, and said unto him, One thing thou lackest. Go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor. And thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come, take up the cross, and follow me. And he was sad at that saying, and went away grieved, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked round about, and saith unto his disciples, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answereth again, and saith unto them, Children, how hard it is for them that trust. And this same word is translated obey. How hard is it for them that trust or obey in riches? And Strong's defines this word riches as a thing, a matter, a affair, an affair, an event, a business. So how hard is it for them that trust or obey in riches or things or matters or affairs or events or business to enter into the kingdom of God? It is easier, easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And they were astonished, out of measure, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? Remember, uh, when we went through this in an afternoon study as we were looking at the Lord's ministry, uh, they were saying this to themselves, but Jesus answers. He looks unto them and saith, With men it is impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. Amen. So the, the emphasis here is not on wealth. I know it can be preached that way. I know that it likely has been preached that way many times, but it's not on wealth. It's on the idea that man can trust in anything, mammon and God. It cannot be that way. You cannot follow God and any other thing. This is the, the, the downfall of religious systems that have been set up because you have to follow something and it means to get to him. And he says, follow me. Jesus says, I am the way, the life, and the truth. I am he that ye are to follow. Call no man father. It is God that we are to worship. This man was rich and young, according to the parallel account in Matthew chapter 19, verse 20 and 22. He's a ruler, according to the other synoptically parallel account in Luke 18, 18, which uh, we'll see this afternoon, Lord willing. He had everything but salvation. Everything but salvation. Did he really believe that Jesus was God? Would he obey what Jesus had said? Nobody is saved by keeping the law. Galatians chapter 3 verse 21. Is the law then against the promise of God? 
God himself forbids it. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. Jesus held before the young man the mirror of the law, so he could see how sinful he truly was. Consider Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. This is exactly what Jesus laid up for him, a mirror reflecting the laws. And he says, I've observed these things since birth. I've observed these things since my youth. And Jesus says in the text that that should reveal then our sinfulness. It, he's, he's saying there in that text, we can't separate it. It's one event. I have observed all those things since youth. And then he also confesses his sadness as he departs and that he cannot give up one more thing for Christ. And it is that one thing in which he appears to trust in the absolute most. There are three impossibilities for us to consider here this morning. The natural man cannot please God. A bad nature cannot yield good fruit. The unregenerate cannot see the kingdom. I was telling one of the men this morning that uh, <laughs> I'm still studying towards this message of what lies at the center of God's will, but it's proving to be uh, a very large study that requires a lot of groundwork to be covered first. So this is part of it, but we're not going to call it a series for confusion's sake. The natural man cannot please God. There's a lot of text we're gonna, I'm going to cite this morning. If you want to turn to all of it, if I hear pages turning, I'll go a little bit slower, but I want to get it all to you. So turn to Romans 8, verses 5 through 8. <clears throat> the natural man cannot please God. Romans 8, starting in verse 5, For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. So this isn't a suggestion. It isn't a theory. It's a fact. Those that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. And we can, we can come up with a number of illustrations, but probably the easiest one is whatever it is we're longing for, our minds, our old man nature is going to do everything it can to preserve that one thing. If we never ask the question, is this God's will, then our person and everything that is involved in our person is going to manipulate and cover and lie and deceitfully use to establish that one thing that we had set at the center. How powerful is that motivation if the one thing set at the center is God? How powerful is that ability of ours to line everything up to achieve the one dream? I like to use this example. It makes Rebecca's eyes roll in the back of her head. But if my one dream is to have a large stuffed crust pizza tonight, <laughs> everything I do, including the illustrations in my sermons that morning, will point toward that one goal. And since I'm on a diet, I'll skip lunch. I'll drink only water all day. I'll do all that I have to do to achieve that one purpose. It's a silly example. But unfortunately, pornography and adultery and all these other things will fall right in too if we have that at the center. But if one large stuffed crust pizza is at the center of my dreams just for today, then everything that I do, think, or act upon will be with that in the back of my mind I'm going to accomplish this goal. How have I lost any weight? It's because every day my goal is to play pickleball or get to the gym. 
every day is to stir up the lees, to do something different that I'm not accustomed to. And beloved, that's how we set our New Year's resolutions, our goals in life is to have it as a new center point. You know what got me fat? My one center point was to get back to bed, back to my easy chair, back to that same pizza. And I got there time and time and time again. But what if that one center is God? It can't be for the natural man. But what if for the regenerated man, the man who is born again, what if God is absolutely at the center? This is the importance of self-reflection against Scripture that we've been talking about for three weeks. This is what makes Him our sinner. This is what stirs up those leaves. This is what causes for us to be intentional with our actions and with our thoughts and with our mindsets. The natural man cannot please God. It is not natural for man to trust God. But that is the way to be saved. You know what's natural for man? To establish ways to accomplish things. Because that involves man. To establish ways in which we will accomplish a thing. Religions have been born from that same ideology. I'm not going to call it theology. That same ideology. If I can please God by doing this thing, and then this thing, and then this thing, and then this thing. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus saith unto them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh under the Father, but by me. That verse ought to be highlighted in every color available in our Bible covers, beloved. That should be the center of our purpose. Because if He is the only way, if no man cometh unto the Father but by Him, then we should be doing everything possible to know this man, Jesus Christ. He's the only way to the Father. Who wants to go to the Father? Who wants to be in the kingdom? Yet this day to be in paradise. For who is that desire? It is for he who has Christ Jesus at the center. Has Christ Jesus as his focal point. He's the way, the truth, and the life. There is nothing else to add to that equation. Think about your natural self for just a moment. It likes to be comfortable, doesn't it? Doesn't like to shovel snow. Doesn't like to be cold doesn't like liver and onions and, and broccoli, likes pizza. My body, my, my natural man has been known to stretch itself, if you know what I mean, to accommodate the appetite for pizza. To accommodate the appetite for, you see what I'm saying, I'm planting all kinds of seeds. I don't even really want a pizza though, this is the illustration. Pizza is not good for any part of me. But the more I try to convince myself that that's the end goal, the more I firmly put pizza on the throne, the more good it sounds. Think about it. Pepperoni, extra cheese. You probably weren't hungry when you came in here. These, these guys definitely are. They're always, these teenagers, they're hungry all the time. But think about Genesis 3 for a moment. See, Eve didn't, and you can turn it if you like. We're going to read a lot of Genesis 3. The problem is the desire. The problem is something being affixed into this position in our hearts and minds that suddenly makes it desirous and everything has to line up to accommodate. Listen to Genesis 3, 
the first six verses. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it. Neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. The neither shall ye touch it part. This is the first we hear that. But we see already in that verse that she knows what God had said. She's not to partake of this tree. She's even adding to it, and maybe it's an interpretation of, of her head, Adam, when he is taught the importance of keeping this temple, the garden, that we are not to go near that tree. We are not to touch that tree. We describe that to our little children that way, do we not? Most things aren't going to spontaneously combust, but if we don't want Zeb to touch it, we tell him, hot, hot, and he doesn't go anywhere near it until nobody's around. And the serpent said unto the woman, you shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, listen to this, and the tree to be desired, to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. It's that point, that section of this text, where it says, a tree to be desired to make one wise, where the tree is set in the center of her will. I gotta have this tree. There's something desirous of this tree. Gotta have this tree. And this is lust, beloved. Adam and Eve knew only contentment up to this point. But this is lust. This tree is one to be desired. It supplanted what she had just said that God said no. God said, don't touch of this tree. Rebecca said, you don't need a pizza. But I see a pizza to be good and desired of. Make me happy and content. It's not true. But I'm allowing it to have that seat. Our natural selves. Think about this word natural. It's nature. Old man nature, new man nature. Our natural selves fell that day in the garden. Right there in verse 6. Our natural selves have kept on feeding desires ever since. It's not natural for man to truly contemplate eternity. It's not natural for man to ponder the state of his soul, but he must. And if you've never done it before today, ye must do it now. You must be born again to see the kingdom of heaven. You must go through Jesus Christ to get to the Father. The second thing to consider, the second impossibility for natural man is that a bad nature cannot yield good fruit. Oh, how many religions establish the idea that you can do good things. That for somehow it's logging itself into some bank account under your name, that the Lord will look at one day and say, Oh, this is pleasing. You should be considered. That's not what a good and faithful servant is. A good and faithful servant dies unto himself. A good and faithful servant like Abraham is told that Isaac must perish, and he has to trust and obey. He has to get up early that day, prepare the wood, prepare the rope. Prepare the device for which the fire would be sparked. Prepare his men and take a three-day journey to the mount. You ever thought about what all Abraham went through on that journey? It wasn't a few-minute drive. He actually had a lot of time to think about what he was about to do. From the very beginning of that chapter, he got up early to do it. And all the way through, he leaves the servants at the foot of the mountain. He says, I and the lad will be back. The lad says, where's the sacrifice? 
Imagine Abraham, the lump in his throat. But through that entire chapter, it's not the fruit of that tree that's at the center of his will. It's not stuffed crust pizza at the center of his will. It's pleasing God at the center of his will. And with that, at the center of his will, he did everything in that chapter to accomplish that one goal. Are we here today with that at the center of our will? This is a tough question. It's not an easy Sunday school. Yes, 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 me. I, I agree with you. And then we walk out of here with something else. What indeed is at the center of God's will in your life? What is at the center of the purpose that you have in mind? God's good at changing minds, by the way. Is it pleasing God? Is it losing whatever you have to lose to gain Christ? That's what Paul said. I count all but done. The knowledge, the perfect knowledge of Christ Jesus. Consider Matthew chapter 7. A bad nature cannot yield good fruit. Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20. We see the following admonition. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. Consider the garden again. Genesis 3, this time starting in verse 7. We left off in verse 6. Genesis 3, verse 7. And the eyes of them both are opened. What did we just read? She took of the fruit that she saw was now to be desired. And she ate, and she gave to her husband, and he did eat. And no men, this doesn't mean that he was manipulated. He had the word of God delivered to him directly. He was to protect the temple, the garden. He was to lead that first home. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. You see how quickly there's suddenly fruit? They weren't in the process of making aprons. This wasn't just a Tuesday, apron-making day. They never had aprons before now. But they are literally compelled in their innermost desire to bear fruit. And the fruit that they bear now is not that God said we are not to partake of that tree. The fruit they have now is we're naked. we got to cover a fact that they're naked and, a, and an intentionality to covering that nakedness. Their fruit is already showing. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves. More fruit. They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? Beloved, he knew. He wasn't interrupted in his ministry. And he was not surprised by where his people were. He knew. He's literally saying out loud, this is something to be addressed. Where are you? You're to be in the garden. You're to be keeping the garden. You're to be unashamed of me and your purpose. Where are you? He says. And Adam says, I heard thy voice in the garden and was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Yeah, that might sound like it makes sense. But Adam, up to this point, had never been afraid of the voice of God and never hid himself from God. 
God was his maker. Are we foolish enough to think that a man that has made a, a watch does not know all the inner workings of that watch, if it works? That a man that works on planes doesn't know how planes work? God made Adam. God knew everything about Adam, but now Adam is afraid of God. Another question that God knows the answer to, and God said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Remember, he's asking these questions for Adam. Where are you? Do you know where you should be? What's at the center of your will today, folks? What's at the center of your purpose? We could call it the throne of God. We know it's His, but what's there? Who told you it shouldn't be there? Or who told you it should be? Because that's what Satan did. The idea of obeying God was at the center of Eve's uh, on the throne, whatever you want to call it. And Satan said, well, how about this? We do eat at the tree and you become smarter. And now that's the focus. And we know this because the fruit of, of that drive led her to grab from the tree that she now saw desires and eat of it and share of it. Who told thee that thou wast naked? God's saying, think about this for a minute. Did I tell you that? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded that thou shouldest not eat? He's not only saying, did I tell you that? But he's saying, didn't I tell you this other thing? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, remember the fruit, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. Old Adam has become a liar overnight. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? He knows. He already knows. He's calling Eve's attention to it. Think about what you have done. Think about who you have heeded to. Think about what is motivating your heartstrings, what is motivating your movements, your actions, your decision-making. And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. This is self-justification. This is a type of religion as well. The woman made me do it. The serpent made me do it. These verses immediately follow the phrase, He did eat, that we just read in Genesis 3, verse 6. We can already see there's a desire to hide from the light, can't we? They heard God coming and they hid. They were afraid, Adam said. Can man bear the required godly fruit this way? Can man please God when he is in disobedience to Him? Was there any way that Adam in this fallen state could make God happy? I mean, if you thought about this situation, and I thought about this text a lot, as though you were Adam. I was, I was a troubled youth. I was in trouble a lot. So I'm very familiar with the situation of having a, a powerful being. What are you doing? What were you thinking? Why did you do this? You ever thought about being in Adam's position here? What can he possibly say that will please God? It wasn't she made me do it. And it wasn't the serpent made me do it. What could possibly have pleased God in this situation? What could Adam and Eve have done to pacify God the Father in that moment? Absolutely nothing. At the end of Genesis 3, we see what could be done, but that wasn't made available to them yet. Everything designed at creation was given the express purpose of bearing fruit. Everything. And it's not an express purpose in that, well, it's one of the options that you can choose to do. It's something that you are designed to do. Well, we, 
uh, folks with free will don't really love that concept, do they? They like the idea of evolution because it sounds like there's something we chose to do. I don't want to be in water anymore. I don't want to be an ape with four hands anymore. I want to have feet. It's not true. This express purpose of bearing fruit is what the Lord spoke into existence as the purpose of everything that He created, which means you're going to bear fruit. Whatever's at the heart, you'll bear fruit of it. And we see it in man right away here in Genesis 3. Speaking to the Jews, we read the following conversation in John chapter 8. John chapter 8, starting in verse 38. Jesus says, I speak that which I have seen with my Father, and ye do that which ye have seen with your Father, bearing fruit. They answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. Jesus saith unto them, If ye were Abraham's children, ye would do the works of Abraham. But now ye seek to kill me. A man that hath told you the truth which I have heard of God. This did not Abraham. You do the deeds of your father. I, I love that in this back and forth conversation, his part keeps ending with, you do the deeds of your father. Then the Jews say unto him, We be not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. Jesus said unto them, If God were your father, ye would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why do ye not understand my speech? Time out. This is still God here. He knows the answer to these questions. He's trying to draw their attention to it. Why do you, if God is your father, not understand my speech? Why does it sound foreign to you, the things that I'm saying, if I'm sent directly of God, and you claim that He's your Father, why don't you understand these words? And then He answers it for them. Because you cannot hear my word. Ye are of your Father, the devil. And the lust of your Father ye will do. Here are some, some statistics about the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning, Jesus says. He abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar. So he's a murderer, and he's a liar. And he's the father of lying. He's the father of it. And because I tell you the truth, ye believe me not. Which of you convinceth me of sin? And this doesn't mean that they're trying to coerce him to sin. They're talking about which, which of you can make me a sinner, essentially. And if I say the truth, why do you believe not me? Again, he's not saying things that he's looking for answers to. He's asking them, consider in yourselves, why is it that ye not believe me? He that is of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not, because ye are not of God. He literally walked them through a mathematical process when he said that their father was the devil and they said, no, Abraham's our daddy. And then he says, well, if you were sons of Abraham, so on and so on and so on. And they said, well, we're not, uh, we're not bastards. We're not born under multiple, uh, out of a fornication type situation. And he says, no, so let me help you get there. The fruit you are bearing is proving who your daddy is. And your daddy is the devil who is the father of lies and a murderer from the beginning. There's no truth in him. There's no truth. There's no life. And if there's no truth and there's no life, then there's no way to the father that way. What lies at your heart, beloved? Oh, I know. We confess to be born again. That's wonderful. That's commanded of God. What lies at your heart, beloved? We have to answer this question, and we probably ought to answer it every day. Look it in the mirror. 
What lies in our heart? It's revealed in even the simplest of sins. And beloved, we have to guard our testimonies. I want to challenge you. I know at the end of February, the men and I are getting together, probably the women too. We're going to discuss men things. You know, that kind of stuff. But I'd like to challenge you for, the, for maybe the next week, maybe the next two weeks. Start watching yourself. What is it that you do most in your downtime? I imagine for most of us, it's in this area. Or maybe it's one of, one of those, little TV down here. But just, just log it for a week. I think a week would probably be good enough. Just log it. I sat down. I mean, you, you won't even think about it until you've done it for a minute. Just pull out a piece of paper. I sat down at 11.30 and started watching TV. And then pull that paper back out four hours later and say, I stopped watching TV. Well, hopefully it's not four hours. But you understand what I'm saying? Because in February, I'm going to ask you to fast it. Because we are distracted as God's people. Mightily. Easily. We are lulled to sleep. So you track it. Maybe it's fantasy basketball. I love to fast that. I hate basketball. Isaac got me in a fantasy league. I will fast that in a heartbeat. But maybe it's football. This time of year, that's toxic. Maybe it's sports in general. Maybe it's physical fitness. Maybe it's eating. Whatever it might be, you don't have to share that with any of us, but you log it for a week, find out what it is, and then see if you can safely fast it for a short period of time. And in that time where you're fasting of that one thing, I just want you to simply think about God and read His Word. I'm not asking you to read it cover to cover. I'm asking you to think about what God has done for you and express thanks for it. The only way we're going to change what's at the center of our hearts is to work at it. There's a lot of things that have been buried in our persons. A lot of things that we are manipulated with every single day. It took one cold snap for me to be over here as much as I had intended to when I first moved here. I got a lot done this week. So we're all going to do it for a week. The third point, the unregenerate cannot see the kingdom. They can't be motivated by what they cannot see. Who would doubt that on the cross, with the two male factors on his sides, the one experienced a change? What caused that? What triggered the change in the one? The one that Jesus said, you should join me in paradise, even this day? What, what caused that change? Was it seeing Jesus led through the crowd the same way he was, but a whole lot more shouting and booing and hissing from the Jews? Was it the way they erected his cross with him on it, the sudden jolt as his body and flesh tore when it got up there? Was it just the, the amount of time he had to stand up there and think about it? Or was it, in fact, the existence and the testimony of Christ Jesus and his being brought near unto him and being enabled to see, being able to understand. He didn't deserve it. And as we said in the past, he didn't get an opportunity to come off the cross and do all the things Baptists say we got to do. He didn't do the Lord's Supper. He didn't, have a, he didn't have time to go home and yell at his wife for not wearing covering or wearing pants. He didn't get to straighten out anything or anyone. He just simply said, I am a sinner. I deserve this cross, and this man doesn't. He's righteous. Suddenly, he's refocused with the short amount of time that he had left. The unregenerate cannot see the kingdom. The other male factor didn't see it. The other male factor was railing on Jesus and this guy now for the remainder of the time he had left on the cross. 
Consider the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus in John 3 for this final point. The unregenerate cannot see the kingdom of God. And we see here in Genesis 3, starting in verse 1, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. There's a lot of things we already see in the first couple of verses. He comes at night. He does not want to be discovered. And he's protecting himself the same way we probably do too because he's using pronouns like we instead of me. That's what we do and we, we want to sound like we're a mob and we're really alone. Nobody else came to Jesus by night of the Pharisees, just Nicodemus. And he says, No man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, The most important thing that could be said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Already Nicodemus says this was way more than I asked for. I didn't set up this overnight meeting with you in the covert darkness to be lectured. I got questions. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter into the second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, Ye must be born again. That's three times in a short span, Ye must be born again. Jesus is already showing a love for Nicodemus. He's not fooling around with niceties. He's not fooling around with small and idle conversation. He's going right for it. Nicodemus, you must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus answered and, and said unto him, How can these things be? I think this was an earnest question. I think Nicodemus was really asking, How can this be true? I got to tell you, being raised Catholic, that question hits you a little differently. When you first hear the truth, when you first hear Scripture, and you're compelled to ask the question, how can these things be? Nicodemus, the same thing. I've been practicing religion my, my whole adult life. I've been a, a leader, a teacher in these things. How can what you're saying be true? And he's running facts through his mind. He's already said, God's got to be with a man to do the things that you're doing. How can God be with you and you saying these things then have to be true because God wouldn't be with a man who's saying these things. How can these things be true? Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, of great importance, I say unto thee, we speak that we do know and testify that we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things and ye believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. This is a very important chapter in the Bible. It's way more than just verse 16. Good one to memorize. It's way more than verse 16. He says that once in that chapter, but he repeats you must be born again at least three times. Man began to prefer darkness immediately there in the garden. I heard the voice of God who's light. I have to hide. I'm afraid. All are a product of Adam. There's no other way in which man has been created except for Jesus himself. Like it or not, Adam's one of your daddies. 
Adam submitted himself to the devil. And for that to be undone, we must be born anew. I know that sounds harsh. Adam submitted himself to the devil. Let me put it to you like this. Adam had one law that he was to obey. And he rebelled against the God who gave him that law and submitted himself to the devil. I'm sorry. Though I try, there's no other way to say it. This is exactly what he did. And it wasn't Eve's fault. Adam was responsible to teach Eve. She came from his own side. She was his responsibility. Ladies, there is a head. That's how it works. And Adam took his household and submitted it to the devil. And all we are of that household. All we must be submitted to Christ Jesus. All we must partake of the tree of life. Or shall forever perish. Shall forever suffer. A continual living in all eternity with the one male factor and Jesus Christ. Or an eternity of dying. See, it's not just eternal death. It's eternal dying. That male factor that was on the other side of Lord Jesus has been suffering and dying ever since. It's not something to be played with. Hail Satan is not something to be celebrated and announced in city council meetings. I wonder if they know the weight of what they've done. Adam and Eve learned pretty quickly. Pretty quickly. So we see with Nicodemus a change had to happen because the unregenerate cannot see the kingdom. He says, if you're not born again, you won't see the kingdom of heaven. Amen. That male factor had to be born again because if he wasn't born again, he wasn't going to see the kingdom of heaven. The young man there in Mark 10 that we started with, he, he, he paid attention to the law since his youth. And the law had brought him to Christ. Galatians 3.24, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. The law's intention is to reveal unto us that we cannot keep it, but Jesus did. It is to reveal unto us that these laws must be kept for me to please God, but I cannot keep them. So I must submit myself to the one who offered himself upon the cross for me to vicariously have pleased the law and vicariously have pleased God. I must be identified with him. And if he's the only way, the truth, and the life to God, he ought to be the center of my heart, the center of my purpose, the center of my will. Amen. But this man in Mark 10 had not humbled himself as a lost sinner. He observed the law. I love the, the phrasing there. How many have observed the gospel? And how many have been made to live it? I mean live it. Read the New Testament from Acts forward and tell me Paul didn't live the gospel. He's an example for us. Jesus was an end sample. He lived the gospel. He is the living, breathing gospel. It's not enough to be a fan. It's not enough to merely observe. All that's happened, all that's coming, requires of us to come hither, to go into Goshen, to draw nearer, nearer, for us to long to be near our God. We have our heading. We know where we are to be. We know where we long to go. And everything should be involved in setting a course to that one destination. Colossians 3 verses 1 through 11. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. 
That verse by itself is enough. I'm going to let you read verses 2 through 11 later. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. He's not given us a mystery of where he is. He confessed to the disciples over and over again where he came from, where he was returning to. Deacon Stephen saw him. Where was he? Standing at the right hand of God the Father. He is there, beloved. We know where he is. We have our heading. It's right there in the text. It's not your heritage nor your religion, but Jesus Christ that makes all things possible. These disciples say, who then can be saved? And Jesus, looking upon them, saith, with men it is impossible. You cannot do it. But not with God. For with God all things are possible. Are you with God? All these things that we just talked about, these three impossibilities, they're impossible for us too if we are apart from God. If we are without Jesus, we are apart from God. How is it with you here today? Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? I like to think of Paul and Silas, and you've been very patient, but I'm going to take advantage of you. Acts 16, and I'll summarize a lot of it. Acts 16, Paul and Silas are in prison. The old prison keepers outside. And Paul and Silas begin to praise the Lord through prayer and singing. It's the same exact way we are called to please the Lord today. It has not changed to worship services with worship leaders and song leaders and, uh, and all of these coffee shop <laughs> ministries that exist out there now. It hasn't changed. Paul and Silas were able to worship God in prison the same way we are able to worship God here. With praying and singing. With a whole heart devoted unto God. Hearts sacrificed unto the Lord. They were bearing fruit even in prison. It's what we do. And the prisoners heard them, according to verse 25. And then in verse 26 of Acts 16, we read this. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bands were loosed. And that old prison guard, that prison keeper, he woke and found the gates open, and was prepared to end his own life. He observed that Paul and Silas were in there. He's the keeper. He knew who his prisoners were. He had observed who was in there. Maybe he was awake before, uh, while they were beginning their prayer and singing. Who knows? But he observed that they were there because he's quickly assessing they're probably not now. He's ready to end his own life because that would have been the punishment for a prison keeper who'd lost his prisons. Prisoners. It's a real simple equation, but we've got to spell it out because it's this message, Right? The purpose of a prison keeper is to keep the prison. He had an express purpose. And the gates are open. His employer was not going to be pleased. What could this old prison guard tell his employer when they showed up the next day and the prisoners were gone? What could he possibly say that was going to appease his employer? You're thinking of Genesis 3, I hope. What could he possibly do to make this better? I fell asleep. No, that's not a good place to start. The earthquake did it. And it popped the gates open. And they all ran out. He's going to have to lie. I was buried under some rubble. I said, no, wait, please don't go. What could he possibly say? 
The punishment was death. He was going to be killed. It is an awful fruit for a prison keeper to have lost his prisoners while he slept after all. And Paul cried out with a loud voice that they were all present. None had departed. In verse 29-31, he says, Then he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So let's stop before we finish here. What did Paul just do for him? He saved his life. Because if had one person left, he'd be dead. But this man, thinking himself assuredly dead, has now been revived. He now has renewed life. He says, how can I be saved? How with the gates open have you all not departed? How are you in prison with such peace? He's observing now. The earthquake did more than just open the gates. Woke him up, literally. And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved and thy house. That is the invitation that's before you today. The rapture has not yet occurred. We are all here. Do thyself no more harm. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Many preachers before me have become experts at complicating this. But it was this simple for two prisoners and an old prison keeper. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you do believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, make Him your focus. I mean, close your eyes for a minute. It really doesn't matter what's coming in the next three months, six months, nine months, and that includes the election. doesn't matter. Your focus shouldn't be on any of that. We are pilgrims in a strange land. This is not our home. This is not our country. Do you know what this is? This is like a consulate in a foreign land where we've been permitted to gather to worship our true Father. This is a safe place right now for believers to gather and praise His name. But we don't belong here. We don't own the land. One day they may come for it. One day they may take our Bibles and our guns. Get you good and riled up this morning. And so be it. We can't take any of that with us. This is to be on our hearts. It is to be our hearts. You know what the word heart actually is? It's not the... Because that's not really in the center of the body, is it? When the Bible talks about the heart, it talks about the center. This should be our center. It should be what pumps out to all of our limbs, our mind, our feet, where we go and what we do should be navigated by our heart, our center. Not that old Disney heart. Follow your heart. Do what's in your heart. That's garbage. Okay, that's Disney. He was a man. Fallen like the rest of us. Christ Jesus should be our heart. How is it with you today? Do you know him? We're going to observe the Lord's Supper today, this afternoon. Boy, I hope you know him. If you don't know him, I, I want you to stick around for that supper. I want you to watch what we've been called to observe. It's not magical, and you're not going to get any on you or anything of that nature. But you're going to see people, a people, who have faithfully observed this ordinance for 2,000 years. Not because it saves, but because it pictures our Lord and Savior.
You're going to see elements that have been kept and preserved for 2,000 years in the purity it's been commanded to have been kept in. And it's not because we are right and they're wrong. It's because this is what Jesus has commanded that we do. This is a precious thing. It's an old thing. It's scoffed at by the world to long for old things. Because of that, we keep repeating the same mistakes over and over and over again as a society. There are three impossibilities for the natural man. You won't please God apart from the Lord Jesus. If you don't remember the other two, that's the most important one. You won't please Him. May the Lord see fit to bless this message, to bless this day. And we're thankful that you are here. If there's anything we can do, I know I speak for the men, but if there's anything we can do, please don't hesitate to bend our ear. Count it a blessing to pray with anyone lost or saved. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to preach and teach your word. We're thankful, Father, for this church, the beacon of light and hope that it is to this community. And we pray, Father, that we do justice to the commission, to the work that you have called us to do. We ask, Father, you be with us over these over this next week or so as we start to observe our patterns. We start to observe our traditions, the things that we do with our time, and we just make note for ourselves how much time perhaps we're losing to these things. It's a fun activity, Father, but it's a horrible, devastating revelation when we realize we say things like, I couldn't possibly read the Bible in a year, and we see how much time we're spending on all these other things, and indeed we could. When we say to ourselves, I couldn't go to my neighbor and talk to them about the Lord Jesus. I couldn't go into my community. I couldn't lead a Bible study. I couldn't study to teach. But we start to see how much time we're piddling away, fretting away on Fox News, CNN, Lord help us, our phones, whatever it might be, Father. I pray that whatever we're observing is true. And that you renew in our hearts and minds what a better use of time would be. What it would look like, Father, for you to truly be at our heart and at our center. Lord, we praise you for this message, for the messages in Sunday school, Lord, and, and, and what it's done for our hearts this day. We praise you for the pain of what it reveals. And we ask, Father, that you be merciful unto us, a group of pitiful sinners with no other way to you but through the Son. We ask, Father, we receive a charge from this message, a burden to live it, to share it, and to express our thankfulness unto you for your long suffering. And Lord, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.